this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Kimberly May, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor and Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, We'll be talking about her work in an area of specialty, harm reduction approaches to substance use. Welcome to the show, Kimberly. Hi, thank you. So uh, tell us, what are your credentials and experience? Yeah, so I'll break down those confusing acronyms. So I'm a licensed professional counselor supervisor, um, and I currently have an LPC associate working underneath me. And then I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. So. break it down what kinds of uh experience did you do for like your um your internship yeah so i did my practicum it was a minute ago um at a place i believe it's still around the name has changed and the location has changed but capital area um yeah. yeah it used to have a much longer name i think now it's just capital area counseling um i worked there um, which I loved. Um, it was a really great experience. And it was my first kind of introduction into a private practice setting, which at the time I was like, it's not for me. <laughs> and I, after graduation, I had a, a friend who I finished, who I graduated with, who was working at a methadone clinic. And I asked him what it was like. And he said it was like doing therapy on a pirate ship. And I was like, I want whatever that means. I want it. I'm Um, in. (laughs) Yes. Sign me up. So I ended up working at the methadone clinic for almost five years. Then I spent about another five years working for the local mental health authority here in Travis County in Triple Care. Um, I worked in their intellectual and developmental disabilities division. 
Um, and I had a lot of wonderful experiences there. I had the opportunity to, I developed a lot of trainings uh, for law enforcement, corrections officers and mental health officers on how to better support that population and develop some crisis programs. And it was a wonderful experience. And the whole time I missed working in substance use. And so I finally decided that all those years back, thinking back on Capital Area, I was finally ready to kind of delve into that private practice world, um, provided I could do the substance use work that I wanted to do the way that it made sense to me and the way that I believed in. Um, and so that's what I do. That's awesome. I, uh, I didn't do my internship there, but I worked on MCOT and I worked at PES when it was still a 24 24- our facility over on uh-huh. Holly Street. <clears throat> awesome. Yeah, that that was, I mean, if you want to talk about trial by fire. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan of the MCOT and the EMCOT teams. Just shout out. They, we have amazing crisis response teams um, here in Austin. And both of those teams were incredibly supportive and collaborative in figuring out how to better serve our IDD population who are so often excluded from substance use services, mental health services, um, crisis services. And so I I can't say enough awesome things about integral care and and those teams. Yeah, I love that work. Love that work. so, Kimberly, what is the name of your practice or the practice that you work at? Substance use therapy. Um, okay. It's, it's not a clever name. I, <laughs> I get that. Um, but it is, it's clear, it's direct, and it is what I do. Um, therapy of all kinds uh, for anybody whose lives are being impacted by substance use. Okay. So at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? Yes. So initially I was like, no, I'm not going to accept insurance. And then the pandemic happened and so many people had lost jobs. So many people were really struggling financially. Maybe they had their job, but their partner had lost their job. And it just, it seemed like a good time to reevaluate that. Um, but also I didn't want to complicate my life too much. So I just selected one um, and I work with United Healthcare, which kind of encompasses Optum too. Right. Yeah. 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 And UMR and All Savers. um, I think those are two of their subsidiaries as well. I used to be on United. So I can't keep track of all the subsidiaries. It's it's difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So you accept United do you have a reduced fee option or a sliding scale available for clients? I do. I maintain some sliding scale options. Um, and the LPC associate that I supervise also sees clients under me. And so he's able to do an even lower sliding scale. Um, cool. And I also maintain some spots uh, for clients connected through SIMS. Um, and I see some SIMS clients as well. Awesome. Um, what about weekend or evening appointments? Evenings, yes. Weekends, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Okay. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what was? Yeah, it's my first career. Certainly not my first job. Many right. jobs before this, but yes, it was my first career. 
What was your least favorite job you've ever had? I got this job to this day. I don't know what I was meant to do there. Um, <laughs> I, I worked kind of like an assistant at like a small investment company, okay. but I never knew what I was doing and no one really ever trained me. And eventually they fired me, which totally made sense. Uh, and it was eight to five. It was, it was miserable. Um, I, oh, so boring. It sucks to yeah. not understand what your job is. Yeah. I think the people were life. lovely. Yeah. I think we just didn't know what to do with each other. Like, I don't know. So. <laughs> well, no direction. That's kind of a hard, like, you know, my, yeah. my worst was retail. I worked at a kid's clothing store. Um, around the holidays, and it was awful. I think well, I lasted. You were asking for it. <laughs> I know. I was in. I was in high school. I think I was in my senior year of high school, and I think I left after like three weeks. I just couldn't, and it was awful because they had the same like ten songs, like ten Christmas songs, playing over and over and over again, and that just drove me insane. I think that was kind of the the icing on the cake that did it for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, you know, what, what drew you to being a therapist? I was, I was about 10 and my parents uh, were kind of in a custody battle as people going through divorce often, often are. And I had to see a court appointed psychologist um, because I was not old enough to represent myself in court. I don't remember anything that we did. I don't remember what we talked about, but I remember she sucked. And I remember <laughs> knowing she sucked. And I remember thinking her job seems cool. I bet I could do that better. Um, I was a little cocky when I was young. And <laughs> <laughs> it just, I just kind of kept adding information about like what it would mean to be a counselor or a psychologist. Um, and I just, just, nothing else ever seemed as interesting as this. I thought for a long time I wanted to work with kids. I got a job at a daycare after I graduated high school um, to test that theory. And it turns out I don't like kids. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> um, it was a wonderful experience. The kids were lovely, but that is, that is not my bag. Um, yeah. And so... For a long time, I knew I wanted to pursue this. I knew it was going to be mostly adults or adolescents, but it wasn't until, really wasn't until I got the job at the methadone clinic that I, it, the, the substance use and harm reduction piece really clicked for me. Well, I mean, I think as a kid, I, I don't think you're cocky. I think kids just have a really good bullshit meter. Um, That's sweet. You know. And I was cocky. <laughs> um. You know, I remember as a kid, like the school counselor and just thinking like, what is your job? Like, you know, like, what do you do? Um, but for me, it, it came from my, I have an uncle who is, uh, he's been suffering from schizoaffective disorder since I was about 10 years old. Um, and you know, with that sort of diagnosis comes things like tangentiality um, and 
Um, for some reason, I was always able to like understand him and communicate with him. Um, and I got really interested in do doing psychology um, around that time. And I don't know what that says about me, but, <laughs> but I, I used to really enjoy and I used to work a lot in community mental health, um, working with people with psychosis. And I, I love that population. It just has my heart. For sure. It's an incredible experience. I wish, I know a lot of clinicians, they, they go through grad school and they have this private practice vision and they jump straight into it. And I, you know, everyone has to find their own path, but I, I think I think as clinicians in private practice, we bring a lot to the table when we have had those experiences in working with different sorts of populations, working in different environments, um, especially just broadening our understanding of what does community mental health, where we live and where we practice look like. Um, I was fortunate enough to have opportunities to tour and visit clients in the Travis County jail complexes. And I've been to numerous meetings and client visits at Austin State Hospital and Austin Lakes. And, you know, just really having these experiences really, even though it's not touching on what I do now every single day, it just, it broadens and deepens the, just the experience of the human experience, I guess. Well, I, I feel like as a therapist, my experience in community mental health was invaluable. And I think that every clinician needs to experience that, especially if you're going to go into private practice, because when private practice, we don't necessarily have a choice in who walks through our door, right? And we need to be able to offer some sort of support to everyone, no matter what the presenting issue is. Although we can refer, right, but we might also start working with somebody and then figure out, oh, this is an issue for this person. You know, I think it just helps with that continuity of care and being able to handle whatever, you know. So um, thank you for sharing that. Now, I'm, I'm curious, tell us a little bit about yourself, like your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music pets, kids, family, whatever, whatever <laughs> you feel like disclosing. Sure. Uh, no kids. Um, one cat, which still seems overwhelming at times. <laughs> um, Long-term partner. Favorite show of all time. And it, people may say it's overrated. I don't care. Sopranos. Greatest show ever. <laughs> In fact, I love it so much that I've been re-watching re it while also listening to the Talking Sopranos podcast. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. With, uh, what is it, Michael Imperioli and Steve Sharippa host the podcast where they talk, they talk about every single episode. So I'm trying to sort of keep them in line, listen to the podcast, rewatch the episodes. Favorite show of all time. This will be my probably third time like, seeing the whole, whole thing through. That's awesome. I never watched it because it, it was on HBO, right? I never had an HBO membership or whatever for some reason, but it is on my list. That along with Game of Thrones and a few other uh, HBO slash Showtime shows that I've been wanting to watch for years. I'll get to it eventually. Yeah. And, and when I watch The Sopranos, I'll think of you in this podcast too. Okay. And you can reach out and let me know what you think. A very good friend of mine is a therapist and I had been 
violence and gangster stuff is is not her thing the way that it has a weirdly special place in my heart (laughs) (laughs) Um, maybe a little too much um but she finally finally committed to watching it over a period of months and didn't love it to the degree that i did but very much appreciated it and gets why it is considered one of the if not the greatest show of all time are you italian I'm not. Interesting. Um, the reason why I asked that, I just was wondering if there was any sort of like cultural tie to the interest. No. And, you know, this, I don't know, is maybe a bit hypocritical of a therapist, but I've always been drawn to very, I, I just, I go for the violent shows and movies not exclusively, but, but very often you start stacking up my favorite movies and it's Quentin Tarantino and the departed Goodfellas. Like it just, I don't know. We like what we like sometimes. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Have you ever seen American horror story? I don't do stuff that evolved that once it gets into horror or fantasy, I I kind of pull back out. Okay. I've got a good idea then of your, of your uh, style there. I'm, I'm a huge fan of true crime. So mm. like that kind of falls in line with some Sopranos stuff. Right. Um, so I, I would much rather watch like an episode of forensic files than a like really gruesome fictional story. If that makes sense. I don't totally. know why. <laughs> okay. So going back to uh, therapy, you know, when you're working with clients, what modalities do you tend to draw upon? So I do use um, harm reduction psychotherapy, which in and of itself can really be interwoven with different modalities. So whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy, kind of interweaving in more of a psychodynamic approach and existential approach. So I, I love harm reduction psychotherapy. I do use a lot of components of CBT. Um, insight-oriented approaches, uh, solution-focused. You know, I don't go out of my way to say this is what we do, but I think, I think so much of what we do as therapists in general draws upon kind of these existential ideas, right? Freedom and choice and control and death and fear um, and all of that, whether we are struggling with anxiety or an impending divorce or substance use, all of those themes kind of emerge throughout. And I think that's just part of that, that human experience. Um, so that's always present. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Now, to me, harm reduction in general is in a lot of ways a modality, just as you said, and can be utilized with issues such as substance use, self-harm, sex, a variety of other concerns, right? Can you explain to our listeners what a harm reduction approach involves slash includes? Sure. So harm reduction originated in around the 70s in Europe, and it really was a response to like HIV and hep C crisis that was starting to happen. So it was really developed for minimizing harm against people who are using substances. The number one thing in harm reduction, whether you are doing street outreach or counseling, is that you meet people where they are. 
you place your emphasis on reducing harm caused to themselves or others. You explore the relationship that people have with their substances, right? It is a relationship. And you accept that people are complex beings who may have needs beyond just addressing their substance use. So you kind of take those big picture ideas and then you can start thinking about how do you, how do you take out those basic tenets and how do, you, how do you make that then applicable to gambling, to sex, to self-harm? And the main, the main piece of it is that harm reduction does not have a goal other than safety, right? It has, has principles, right? It has kind of these driving factors, but as a goal, the number one goal is safety. So my number one goal is not to get you to stop doing drugs. It's not my goal. That's control, right? My goal is to help keep you safe and support you while you determine what you want. And so these ideas, of course, have this broader applicability to all sorts of things, both, you know, big things like gambling and, and sex and self-harm, and also just little things like not saving money enough or, you know, right. eating to eat better, whatever. Um, and so, so, yeah, you know, like I said, it's developed for, substance use, but I think it's, it, it fits so many things. Yeah. Yeah. So what does a harm reduction approach look like in working with people struggling with substance abuse or I'm sorry, substance use? Um, and it's, so I'll speak to that point real quick. So substance abuse is not necessarily inaccurate, but it's not, not all substance use is considered abuse, right? right. Um, so in harm reduction, we believe that just because somebody uses cocaine doesn't necessarily mean they're abusing cocaine. And that is, that is true in harm reduction. That's not necessarily true in other modalities. Right. Very often people come to see me because they don't know what they want. They know that their substance use is some sort of issue. They know that they're not feeling totally great about all of their choices. They know that they need to maybe at some point do something, but they don't know what that something is. And so they want to be able to explore that, not be told what they need to do. And so a lot of the work in that, in those circumstances are helping people just explore the ambivalence, um, which we are really well trained to do as clinicians, except for when it comes to substance use. Once it comes to substance use, we're usually just told to, you know, ambivalence is denial. And anyone, it's a very binary thing. You either use or you don't use. You either keep using or you quit using. And anything else is just unacceptable. And that there's nothing wrong with that if that's what works for you. Problem is, with that being such the dominant and in many ways only acceptable approach, we leave a lot of people out. Yes. They do have people who have been through a formal abstinence based treatment program. They've made some really major changes and they want my help in supporting that change. And that's totally fine. I work with everybody from continuing to use 
consistently to complete abstinence and everything in between. Well, and I think everybody, like you said, everybody responds differently. And I don't think we respond the best when we have limited options. You know, it's nice to have choices. And I think the most important part about what what you're saying a harm reduction approach looks like is the importance of meeting people where they're at. Because if you, the clinician, set a goal that your client is to abstain from substances when that's not where they are, like you're going to have a hell of a time, (laughs) you know? We're, no one's going to be happy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Client's not going to be happy. I'm not going to be happy. The, the metaphor I usually use is, let's say we go to the doctor and the doctor's like, "Mm, you probably need to start exercising something, right? The doctor's not going to prescribe tennis. Right. (laughs) And if the doctor does prescribe tennis, like I'm not doing it. (laughs) Wildly uncoordinated. (laughs) Like it's awful. I hate tennis. Nothing against it. I'm just, I'm so bad at it. The effort it would take to be decent at it. So I'm not going to do it. So the reason the doctor doesn't prescribe tennis is because not everyone can play tennis. Not everyone has access to a tennis court. Some people have injuries Um, or medical conditions that preclude tennis from being a viable option for them. And so the doctor says exercise. And then it's up to all of us to figure out at this point in our life, given our income and our lifestyle and our free time and our interests and our talents, what's that right fit? Um, And ideally treatment functions in the same way. Sure, there may be a problem. Something may need to you know, shift eventually. How do you want to make that shift? And unfortunately, we just don't frequently enough give this population a choice. Right. I totally agree with that. And I'm sure there are many of what I'm about to ask. um, And I think it's important to address them here and to say what it is not. What are some common misconceptions about using a harm reduction approach to substance use? Like what, what frequently comes up when you're talking to people about it? Oh, there's so many. Oh, there's so many. Okay. One is that misconception one, harm reduction is against abstinence. Not true. It doesn't even make sense right? Why would we be against abstinence? It's not like we get kickbacks from drug dealers and alcohol lobbyists. (laughs) (laughs) Harm reduction just sees that abstinence is one possible choice out of many. It's a respectable choice. It's just not the only valid choice that people can make. Um, The other is that um, harm reduction, kind of the second big myth or misconception that harm reduction condones substance use. Um, We don't support people using drugs necessarily. Sure, it's dangerous, it's often illegal, but we respect personal choice. We respect personal choice. So I, I may have concerns about what you're doing. I may or may not personally agree with what you're doing, but I respect you and I respect your choice to make decisions and I support you regardless of whether or not I agree with your choice. I don't need to agree with your choice to respect you as an autonomous person, right? 
Um, a third misconception is this idea that we should just, why reduce harm? Why not just eliminate harm? <laughs> oh, okay. Um, That's easy. So, <laughs> oh, I didn't, I didn't think of that. <laughs> Work in harm elimination because I'm magic, right? <laughs> People in almost every culture across the world have been using drugs for thousands of years. And it's because drugs work, right? Um, they just do. Not to say that they don't create problems and they don't cause death and they don't create chaos in their wake. But we have time and time again seen a harsher we are in that punitive approach of trying to eliminate this harm. What we end up doing is causing great harm to people. Um, we saw it during prohibition um, and probably even there's older examples beyond this, but um, this is a limited time podcast, right? Um, <laughs> you know, and prohibition gave kind of gave birth to organized crime as we know it today um, to, you know, divert uh, alcohol being used by bootleggers, it was purposefully contaminated. Um, people quite literally were intentionally sickened and killed um, because people were so concerned that no one consumed alcohol that they were willing to make people ill to stop them. Um, we have seen this play out um, especially since the 1980s with the war on drugs. And what we have effectively done is adopted this, this really tough love, shame-based stance, not towards drugs, but towards the people who use them. And incarceration rates continue to increase and overdose deaths continue to increase. And 2020 saw the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded, um, approximately 93,000 people. Wow. About 254 that's, people a day. That's a lot. It, it, and I was I'm not great with numbers. I have trouble conceptualizing numbers sometimes. So I, want, like, I wanted a basis of comparison. 93,000 is the approximate population size of the University of Texas, Texas Tech University, and St. Edwards University combined. Wow, that's really significant. That's a really good way to visualize that. I appreciate I that. Yeah, I, I need numbers to, uh, not a numbers person, so yeah. What are your thoughts on treatments that like, for example, employ things like end abuse? I believe in choice. The number one thing I believe in is choice. Somebody wants to do that, fine. I, have, I am not against options, provided people actually have the option. I would be very much against people being forced to do that. Um, I, in general... Um, I'm not against any particular treatment. I'm just for choice and I'm for options. Got it. What is that? I'm trying to think of it. I, I had 
seen it. I've come across it quite a few times. It's something, hold on, I'm looking it up. The Sinclair method. What are your Uh thoughts about that? Yeah. So the Sinclair method is the the medication naltrexone. Have you heard of naltrexone? Yeah, yeah. So the Sinclair method is naltrexone. It's just a different way of taking it. So there's a way of taking naltrexone in which you take it daily around the same time each day, just kind of like a regular prescription. The Sinclair method, um, I believe, occasionally I mix these up, but I'm pretty sure the Sinclair method is when you take naltrexone only when you intend to drink. And there's been some research that supports that being more effective than taking it every day. Um, I I should clarify, I do not have a license to practice medicine, so um, I I cannot speak to the effectiveness of one method over the other. Sure. But I I have known people who have experienced success um, with naltrexone and or the Sinclair method, and I have worked with people who are like, "Eh, did nothing, right? So some of each. Got it. Okay. So, you know, I know we've talked about this a little bit kind of as we've talked about this, um, but just to give a a more direct kind of answer, how is harm reduction, how is a harm reduction approach different from traditional approaches to substance use? Great question. Traditional approaches to substance use tend to be very binary. You're using or you're sober not a lot in between, right? And so the goal then is to, the, the, it's a pre-existing goal that we're putting people into. The goal is you're going to stop using. Um, and not always, certainly not in every case, but many of the more traditional treatment options are kind of rooted in this past, fail approach and unfortunately sometimes kind of like a shame-based approach. Right. I had a client who I was working with who had been kind of back and forth with heroin, right? Some periods of sobriety and then using some kind of back and forth and just kind of like a, a foot in and out and he was really struggling and he went to, he participated in 12-step program and he went to his sponsor and I said, sponsor, you know, he said, why do I keep going back to heroin? And his sponsor told him, well, because he's an addict. And he came back to me and he was like, so, I mean, I guess that's why, because I'm an addict. And I was like, I do not accept that premise. (laughs) If you use because you're an addict and you're an addict because you use, I was like, that's just like a meaningless tautology. (laughs) Yeah. Doesn't doesn't mean anything. Secondly, you are not an addict. You are a person. First of all, first and foremost, do not ever let anybody give you a label. If you want to call yourself an addict, be my guest. Do not accept that label from other people. And I said, also, you have very specific reasons that you keep going back to it. And right now, that kind of what we think of as physiological dependence is not one of them. There are times where we're using because we're, like, we're going to go through withdrawals if we don't. I was like, you're not in that space. This is a great time to really start understanding you, right? What time of day are you starting to think about using? What's your mood like? What does your body feel like? What's your emotional state? How are you spending your time? How are you responding to your roommates? And what's happening in your world? 
And through kind of that process, we were able to really dial in some really specific kind of urges and triggers and vulnerabilities um, that were kind of kind of keeping him locked in in this cycle. Um, but yeah, no, I I do not work with addicts. I have never met an addict. I work with people. I love that. Um, what was I going to ask? Um, regarding harm reduction, mm-hmm. um, what benefits do you think that approach has like compared to more traditional approaches? Like what, what do you think makes that a like viable, you know, treatment in, in all of this? Right. So, and I, I, so again, I, I just want to be clear. I, I am not against any approach, right? So there, there are many traditional approaches that are the exact right fit for people. Um, and in that case, there is nothing better for that particular person, but it's, it's an, it's a narrow approach uh, with kind of an, it's a narrow approach. It's a narrow goal. And a lot of times it can be really cost prohibitive, right? Like if you don't have insurance, good luck. (laughs) I wish you well. Um, Not a lot of options for you. Um, If you do want that, you know, 30 day inpatient, um, out of pocket, you're usually looking at somewhere between twenty five and sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, that's and insane. It's, and it's important to note that that kind of twenty eight day model is not actually evidence based. Um, the the twelve step model, which I think does one does wonders for many people, and undoubtedly is an amazing system for support for many people but it has sort of become the default of what's acceptable. It's also not evidence-based. Many components of harm reduction are evidence-based. And what's so great about harm reduction is that most always these interventions are actually pretty cost-effective. They are usually relatively easy. Um, They are effective, usually safe. Um, good harm reduction interventions, they support not only the individual's health and safety, but health and safety of the community as a whole. And most harm reduction interventions are a good fit for all kinds of different cultural considerations. Um, they fit with all kinds of different socioeconomic considerations. Um, it's just, it, it's so much broader. And the broader we are, the more people that we can help and the more ways that we can help them, um, right? We're just, we're scooping more and more people up along, up along with us um, and connecting more people to more services and more possibilities. And it just, it has a much, it has a much broader reach, partially in terms of its practicality, its cost effectiveness, um, and it's, and it's positive impact on the community. Yeah. So take something like a, a needle exchange. It's not just it's not just I take my needles, I get clean needles so I can use heroin and there we go, right? Every time I take my old needles and I turn them in, that is that much fewer needles that are out on the street. 
times you doing it, times 50 other people behind me and 100 more people behind me. And we are reducing community spread of HIV, hepatitis C. We are keeping our community cleaner and safer um, for kind of pennies because syringes are really cheap. <laughs> yeah. And, and I love needle exchange programs because of that. Um, but, you know, I know the legalities of a lot of areas don't allow for that, those types of programs. The legality in most areas does, just not Texas. <laughs> well, isn't that the case for many things? <laughs> oh, Texas. Um, I know, right? And, and I don't know about you, but I feel like this sobriety model, this abstinence model, um, I feel like it breeds a lot of guilt and shame. And I feel like that's what ends up perpetuating people using a lot of the time. For sure. For sure. If you, substance use or not, if you're feeling bad about yourself, most of us would really like that feeling to go away. Right. <laughs> right. If you are feeling guilty, isolated, lonely, feeling shame, feeling bad about something that's happening in your life, it's a great time to oh, smoke a little something, bring a little something, make that feeling go away. Um, I work really, really hard to target with people from the get-go as much as I can, starting to minimize the shame that's specific to that substance use. And one of the ways that I do that is by helping people, by validating their choice. Because drugs work. It's a logical choice. There are very few things that are more effective in the short term changing your mood, changing your mental state, your physical state, than, do, than drugs and alcohol. It's a logical thing, and it's very often an adaptive response, an adaptive response to shame, to trauma, to isolation, wanting to feel more like yourself, less like yourself, whatever it is. Um, now, over time, the substances certainly can begin to cause new problems. Um, it can create sort of its own chaos over time, becomes sort of maladaptive because we haven't been learning other ways to mitigate those difficult emotional circumstances. But the choice to use is almost always rooted in some form of self-care, not self-destruction. Absolutely. Now, we know, you know, according to the DSM, right, for anything to meet criteria for anything, it has to have some sort of accompanied functional impairment, right? Um, but it doesn't sound like in order for somebody to engage in a harm reduction, like strategy to manage or to like get to where they want to be regarding substance use, that that's necessarily a requirement. Um, so no. it's, it's more based on, it seems like, whether the person feels like that's an issue. Um, yeah. But are there some points or, or would you advise uh, potential clients about when to consider that something might be an issue? Sure. So... 
I am never shy or hesitant. I could just stop the sentence there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm never shy or hesitant about addressing my concerns about someone's safety. Safety and risk, right? So I'm going to validate feelings and explore the shame and very understanding. But when we're talking about you drinking and driving, I'm going to have a very direct and a very concerning conversation about the very real risk that that brings, not just to you, to everybody around you, right? And so if you want to keep drinking, no judgment, but can we please begin discussing a transportation plan, right? And so I've lost your question. I was just curious uh, as to when you would advise somebody that their use is maybe a little more of a concern than they think it is. Right. Um, I tend to go with other people's view of their use until it really starts interfering with safety. Um, If I have concerns of overdose, um, contaminated supply, if I have root of administration concerns. So, and I, I, I have no issue and I feel like it's my professional responsibility to always, to always bring risks and, and safety to the forefront. Yeah. I mean, that's in line with what a harm reduction model should do. Right. Um, but so I don't your- stop working with them. Right. Right. If they, if they aren't willing to make those changes, I am not like, well, then we're not going to work together. Um, that, that there come, I, and I don't like to use this word, but it's used a lot with this population. Their compliance with my recommendations is not a condition for continued treatment. And again, my apologies for using that word because I don't like it uh, with this population. But. That makes sense. Um, okay. So in your experience, how effective has harm reduction been and how effective is it with, you know, just even thinking about your experience using it with clients? How are we defining efficacy? That's a good question. I I suppose it's what a person wants. Mm. Um, then what their goal is. Yeah. Pretty much always, if we look at if we look at the success of something in terms of someone getting clarity on their relationship with substances, being supported while they do that, and then getting information. So a lot of people, uh, probably one of the most common reasons people see me as alcohol, right? Makes sense. Very often, people have moderation as their goal right? They don't want to give up drinking. They want to change their drinking. Usually what I tell people is, great, um, let's find out. Some people can learn to moderate their drinking and some people can't. I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know which one you are, right? (laughs) But I always support people taking steps to improve their situation. And in harm reduction, we see any step, any step in progress and progress worthy of 
success. One of the reasons for that is true and lasting change usually is pretty reliant on kind of this feeling of self-efficacy, right? People have to feel like they can do it, whatever that change is, losing weight, saving money, going back to school, you know, climbing a mountain, whatever it is. And so when people set out to make a change, even a small change, if they're able to do it, right, it's that feeling of success. And it sounds a little, it sounds a little cheesy and like corporate but like success breeds success, right. right? It's, it's a foothold. It's like, okay, I, I can skip a day of drinking and that, that actually went okay. Like that's a thing I can do. They may or may not choose to keep doing it. They, they did that thing. Right. And that's, that's really what I see as what's so effective about harm reduction is that it gives people the support and the space to start setting these goals and start working towards them at, at the pace that works for them. Right, right. It's re- redefining it, right? Putting the focus on the process, not the outcome. Right. You never really have control over the outcome anyway. It's true. Have you noticed any like uh, patterns of like what types of people, traits, characteristics that a harm reduction approach works best for when it comes to substance abuse or substance abuse? Like like I'm just curious if, if like there's some commonalities in those types of particular clients, you know? You know, I, I said awesome people like a little bit jokingly, but it's also true. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like my clients are really awesome. Um, many of them have either never had any sort of treatment for substance use. And I'm like the very first thing they've tried or they are people who have been through other treatment programs and did not have the experience or the outcome that they wanted. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Um, almost everyone I work with, I'm trying to think if there's an exception to this rule, sense of humor. Almost all of the people that I work with tend to have a really good sense of humor, sort of especially about the absurdity that is life sometimes. Going back Um, to that existential kind of basis of therapy. Yeah. Um, Maybe people who aren't super into bullshit. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Okay. Now, in thinking about harm reduction approaches, what are some specific to alcohol and opiate use? Okay. These are very separate, so I'll, we'll do one at a time. Sounds good. So um, for alcohol, we touched on this briefly before. A big thing would be having a transportation plan, right? And ideally, that just gets planned. As much as you're planning where you're going, what, you know, what bar you're going to, who you're going with, the, the transportation just gets built into that. Um, basic things like making sure that you eat, 
before you consume alcohol. The first drink hits our body differently and is processed differently than the subsequent drinks. So that first drink on an empty stomach is going to like pack an extra, pack an extra punch. Um, and eating something substantial, like a piece of cantaloupe is not going to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like put the grapes down <laughs> Four grapes is not going to, not going to like pizza. absorb that. Tequila, right. Yes, yeah. Like have a piece of pizza. Um, pacing, pacing matters. Um, and it's, it's, a lot of it's just basic common sense things that we don't think about. Pacing matters, as does taking in things like size, age, gender. These things all can influence the way that alcohol affects us, right? My, uh, my best friend, uh, she's wonderful. She is six foot one. I am five foot four. Alcohol does different things to us at a very different rate. <laughs> right, right. Know who you are and know, know your dose, know your limit, um, slow yourself down. Um, a lot of times with alcohol, it's just these really basic things. Um, another one for alcohol, alcohol has very specific standards of measurement, right? especially for people who drink liquor. They're like, mm, I have, you know, I have three drinks a night. Well, a drink of liquor is 1.5 ounces. How many drinks are you having? No judgment, but let's count. So to kind of establish that baseline or to encourage more mindful consumption, pouring things into that measuring cup and keeping track, right? You may choose to go over the amount, but increasing awareness of what you're doing. Um, just kind of, it's kind of a random smattering for alcohol. There's tons more. For opioids, um, oh my goodness. The number one thing is having uh, naloxone or Narcan on hand. Um, number one, most important thing, if you are someone who uses opioids, if you are someone who knows someone who uses opioids, if you just have like, couple of old opioid prescriptions in your house from a root canal. If you have opioids, have Narcan. Um, number one thing. Um, there are testing strips, drug testing strips that you can buy to actually test your drug supply to see if it has harmful contaminants or if it has fentanyl in it. A lot of drugs, opioids and otherwise nowadays have, you know, fentanyl surreptitiously added to it. Um, people can go to dancesafe.org, which is a really trusted, reliable place to purchase testing strips. Start your own little chemistry lab. Um, another thing with opioids, opioids are very set and setting dependent. You know, things like a meth and cocaine, they tend to be they're kind, of, they're kind of trusty, kind of reliable. You know, you know what we're getting. Opioids, it really varies. Um, people are more likely to overdose when they are using with strangers and when they are using in an unfamiliar environment. People are always more likely to overdose after any sort of period of sobriety. 
So again, kind of like with alcohol, know your dose, know your limit, always adjust downwards um, after any kind of period of sobriety. And that's true for alcohol. It's true for cocaine, heroin, just, you know, whether you were in the hospital, whether you're in treatment, whether you just made a change on your own, do yourself a favor. And if you're, if you're going to start using again, start slow and be safe. Um, and on my website, I have a, I have a tab under resources called safety first. Um, and it's got links to information about most of the things that I mentioned today. Okay, cool. I'll be sure to include that in the show notes. And then there's a hotline that I came across recently. I haven't called to make sure it's legit. Um, maybe you, maybe you've heard of it. It's called Never Use Alone. Haven't, but I want to know everything about it immediately. <laughs> um, well, for for those out there, in the case you need it, and I'm hoping this is a valid thing, uh, the phone number is one eight hundred four eight four three seven three one. Uh, basically, it says it's a peer-run hotline. An operator will ask for your first name, location, and the number you're calling from. And if you become unresponsive um, during the call, then the operator will send EMS to that location. I love that. I hope that's real. I, we should both check into it. I am, um, yeah. In, the, in case it's not real or not an option for you, um, another alternative um, is to use with a person a buddy system. And if that's not an option, to do a tester dose or a tester shot, you know, just a, a tiny amount um, and just and see how you feel. But yeah, I love that concept. And I do hope that never use alone thing. I hope it's legit because I Me love, <laughs> love it. So how can family and friends approach conversations with a loved one they're concerned about in terms of substance use from more of a point of view of harm reduction? Mm. I always encourage the stance of objective curiosity, right? Suspend judgment, suspend personal beliefs and all of that. And just, just be curious. Okay, well, why are you using methamphetamines? What do you like about it? What's, you know, what's happening with you when you don't use? What does it feel like when you don't use? What does it feel like when you do use? Are you frightened about your own use, right? Just really try to have that conversation and try to understand it. Far too often, Families, partners, friends jump from fear to now I must change you and save you. Right. And I understand that leap because it can be really scary and there can be and there are deadly outcomes. So I get it. But more often than not, it, that tough love approach doesn't work. Another thing I recommend to families is to set boundaries. Absolutely. Boundaries are about what you need, not what you think is going to change another person, right? So I'm going to set boundaries that are about what I need for myself. If there's other, if the children that are in the home and the safety of our family and all of that, but everything I do is not necessarily trying to change you. 
because I don't have that power and I'm going to piss us both off <laughs> the more I keep <laughs> trying to change you. It doesn't mean I have to approve. It doesn't mean I have to accept what you're doing. It doesn't mean I have to let you in my home if that doesn't feel safe, but I'm also not going to change you. Makes sense. And also please know that I have enormous compassion for the family members of people who use. Um, it's not predominantly who I work with. I do from time to time, certainly. But it is a very scary thing and it can feel very helpless and it can feel overwhelming. Um, and I have great compassion for that. Okay, cool. Well, switching gears a little bit to sure. um, more questions about you as a therapist. Um, and, oh, before, before we do that, um, is there something I didn't ask about harm reduction approaches to substance use that you feel would be good to mention? No, I mean, yes, because I could talk about harm reduction all day long and we didn't talk <laughs> about harm reduction all day long. I think, you know, I know you have clinicians who are listeners. My, my advice to clinicians would be whether or not you have interest in working with people who use or regardless of kind of your personal feelings about harm reduction, just familiarize yourself with it as an option, as a referral source, as, as a thing that's out there in the world to help keep people alive. Um, for your clients that are listening, I would say if it's, I may or may not be the right person for you, but don't hesitate to reach out. If you contact someone and it's not the right fit and you want to talk about substance, keep reaching out. There, there's a lot of different options out there. They're not all easy to find, um, but don't give up after one or two of the not right experiences because you are, you are worth continuing to look for the right fit. Okay. So um, changing gears. What kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable, vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? So I have spent my professional career working in either substance use or intellectual and developmental disabilities. So most of my career has been supporting people who are particularly vulnerable. Um, in terms of vulnerability, I don't know of a more vulnerable population, population than people with intellectual developmental disabilities. Um, That's fair. Uh, especially the ones who I frequently worked with who had also experienced great, great trauma um, and all of that. Um, one of the reasons I like substance use is because I like people. I like people. I think people are interesting. I think all people are interesting. Like we could go in depth about what you've had for breakfast this morning and how you <laughs> feel about cereal in general. And I would think that was interesting. For better or worse, substance use does not discriminate in any way. So I have had what I consider to be great privilege in working with people of all sorts of backgrounds, different socioeconomic status, different ethnicities, different gender, gender identity, um, veterans, first responders, um, people of 
all sorts of different backgrounds, people from different countries. Like it just, substance use touches every group. Um, and so I feel very privileged to have worked with all sorts of, all sorts of different people from all sorts of different backgrounds. It's one of the things I like best because you do get such a diverse population. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I know a lot of clients, they make, you know, they finally reach out, schedule a session, right? Which, you know, we know takes some time sometimes. Sometimes there's a period of months that go by where a person is like, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Then they don't get, get around to it. Then they schedule the session and they feel overwhelming anxiety about at attending the initial session, right? Mm -hmm. So this question is designed to help with some of those anxieties. What could a new client expect from you in an initial session? And what about on an ongoing basis? So I agree. First sessions can be nerve wracking for clients. So I do offer and I don't force people, but I very highly encourage. I give everybody the opportunity for a free 30 minute consultation. And that is part of that. It, it builds a little familiarity. Um, it's also just a chance to see if somebody clicks, right? Sometimes right. people just are like, mm, I don't like the way you sound. Your office smells <laughs> weird. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it's just, I don't believe that people should have to spend money and a huge time investment to figure out just an initial vibe of if someone's a fit or not. So by the time we have that first session, odds are good. We've already spoken for 30 minutes, either in person, over video, or on the phone. I also think of first sessions as, and most counseling sessions, um, more as a jam session rather than a concert. I love that idea. <laughs> right? Like, I love that. Yeah. I don't know. We're just going to bang on some shit and see what happens. Um, I think that things should be fluid. It should be adaptable. Some people come in and they have no idea what to say. And I'm ready right. for that. And that's totally fine. I have some people who come in and they were like, here's everything you need to know about me. Go. <laughs> and they just <laughs> tell me their, their version of their life story in 50 minutes. And that's totally fine. And everything in between. It looks like what it needs to look like and you can't do it wrong. It's my job to keep things moving, not your job to get it right. 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 Okay. Um, how would you say your clients describe or experience you? Oh gosh. I don't know. It's a hard question. It is a hard question. Uh, we'd have to ask them. Um, <laughs> not okay. Um, I think they would say non-judgmental. Um, I think that would be a consistent, a consistent thing. You know, they can, they can pretty much say anything and that's, that's going to be okay. And we can talk about it. They would probably say good sense of humor. Um, I think you've illustrated that pretty well today. <laughs> <laughs> um, they would probably say direct. Um, I, I tend to be even when I'm not trying to be sometimes. Um, and that is, that certainly can be a double, a double edged sword. Um, yeah. Some people don't care for it and I respect that and I get it. Um, for other people, it feels safe. 
Mm-hmm. So to each their own. I mean, honestly, I think that any therapist who is working with substance use has to be direct, in, in my opinion. Because I don't think I don't think the waffling and the well, I don't know, you, you know, I don't think that is a a solid approach for for work with substance use. I, I think it's challenging work and it's important to be direct in that work. I hope that's true because I'm not good at not being direct. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I think I'm being really subtle, like even in my personal, oh, it's even worse in my personal life, trust me. Um, (laughs) And I'm like, I was so subtle. And people are like, gosh, (laughs) I tone that way down. (laughs) Oh, that's pretty funny. Next question. I've gotten so many different answers to. Um, Are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? Laugh, definitely, because I mean, you know, I, and I, I don't know exactly why I do tend to get a lot of people who have either never been to therapy, they don't like therapy or they've had bad experiences. And, you know, I think I don't see why aspects of therapy can't be fun. Like it doesn't have to be this, like tedious drama filled thing every time for whole 50 minutes that part's built into it right because we're talking about hard things and vulnerability I don't see any reason why things also can't be fun when they can be because they can't always right it's like let's let's look for the light where we can okay I'm probably not um I don't take on other people's emotions. So unless you and I are having a sh- the same shared experience, then that's not my space and that's not my pain. And I'm not going to take ownership over that for you, right? I'm not, not going to, I'm not going to claim your experience, your pain, your sadness, your success as my own. All of that belongs to you. I'm not going to take that um, and and try to make it my own. What about those moments that are just incredibly moving that only happen in the context of a therapy session? Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Like, what about those moments? Like those shared moments? I... I value them. I, I love when they happen. Tears are not the response I tend to have to that. I'm not saying it could never happen. Um, I, a very long time ago when I worked at the methadone, this is a slightly different example, but uh, someone, someone died that a client and I both knew. I, of course, only knew this person professionally. The other person knew them personally. um, And we were both saddened by the death of this person. And that was an experience where I don't, there might have been more of an emotional response from me than in other circumstances because that was shared. But in general, tears don't tend to be how I communicate very much um, for better or worse. It's, it's just not. 
it makes sense. And there's no like right answer to these questions, right? <laughs> um, and so one of my favorite questions is the next question. How do you define holding space for someone? Being a calm, consistent, steady presence who is ultimately not too moved by the good and the bad of what you're doing and saying, right? I'm not, I'm going to be excited when things are going well, but I'm not going to be so excited that if things stop going well, you don't want to let me know that. Right. Right. Um, I will have great compassion for what you're experiencing, but not to the degree that you now have to be concerned about my feelings. Right. If my clients forget to almost ever ask how I'm doing or personal questions about me, that lets me, the, that helps make me feel like I'm holding that space, that this is truly their space that belongs to them. And I am here to honor their experience, to help make sense of their experience, um, occasionally to give advice about their experience, right? I know as therapists are like, never give advice. But like, I mean, if you have a problem and I have like a tangible piece of advice, like let's cut the crap and get that done, right? Right, right. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, <laughs> gracious. Um, we Therapists need not be so tedious sometimes. But for me, holding space is making sure that to the degree possible, the experience is about the client. Um, and not that I don't use myself and my personality and not that I don't use self-disclosure and all of that, but holding space is really making sure that the experience is always reflective of their needs and not mine. I have no needs in that 50 minutes. It's kind of the way that I see it. It's exactly how I view it. Okay. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Hmm. So I don't know if it's the best, but it's my favorite. And it was from a supervisor um, at Interval Care. So I wasn't solely, I was in a management role at that time, not so much in like a, a clinical role. But I was new to being a manager and I was supervising a lot of people and I was figuring like, ah, what is this? Right. And he was like, you know, you want to be like the duck. And I was like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm like drowning. Don't tell me to be a duck. <laughs> and he said, he was like, bear with me. He said, if you ever watch a duck bait glide, right? You look out at a, at, a, at a body of water and the duck's just chilling, right? Sometimes bobbing down for some food comes right back up and they're just gliding. And he said, what you don't see is how hard they're working beneath the surface of the water to make it look easy. Um, and so that idea that we're constantly having to work hard at what we do right? Whether we're a manager, whether we're a clinician, I'm a musician, a nurse, whatever, right? But 
we instill confidence in other people and ourselves when we get those moments of where it can look like we're gliding, right? Where it feels effortless, um, when our work can kind of move into a little bit of that flow state a little bit. Um, and that only tends to usually only can look really easy if you've worked really hard. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not Makes sure sense. how applicable that is to your listeners, but it's, it's stuck with me. Yeah, no, I think it's just important to learn about you. Um, and like further in, in your practice, what have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your work? All the same we all are. And I in no way mean that to invalidate people's individual and unique experiences um, because I, I do believe that everyone is a unique individual. And uh, I was watching Ted Lasso recently and they were like, every person is a different person. Like that is true. That makes sense. But there is a sameness that I see over and over, um, especially around themes of safety, of wanting to feel safe, of being affected by times where we weren't. Themes of self-doubt, Am I a piece of shit? Am I a good person? Um, do I fit in? Am, am I good enough? Am I bad? Right? Um, I've, I've not worked with anyone that I can recall where at least those two themes of, you know, the safety and self-identity haven't been a struggle. And I think that that's I see myself in almost every client that I work with. Um, and I don't think it's because I'm a raging narcissist. <laughs> I can't say for sure. <laughs> I, I Not that I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and I've spent a lot of time thinking about me. <laughs> so I, I think it's because, you know, so much of what people talk about is what we all feel stress and, and fear and, concern and these struggles again of safety and identity and regret and remorse and I the more I work with people the more I'm convinced that we the the, the deepest human condition right that deepest state of being human is so much closer to being the same than it is being different we just wear it different you know, I mean, even, you know, I'm going to bring it up again because I think it's worth saying, even going back to those existential concerns we talked about earlier, I mean, we all have those in common. Right. And so after a long, hard day of seeing clients, what is the one thing you absolutely have to do to take care of yourself at the end of the day? Have good boundaries. Good answer. Um, I, I believe the most ultimate form of self-care is boundaries. Um, because no matter what my intention of taking care of myself is, if I don't set the boundaries to do it, then it's not going to happen. 
Work is work and home is home. And I very rarely mix the two. I do not work from home, um, barring some kind of emergency. Um, Nor do I do stuff for home from work. Um, I work when I work. I'm off when I'm off. Not that I'm not available to my clients. I check in. I'm responsive if they need me. And my clients are awesome and very respectful of my time. And they only reach out when they need to. Um, But yes, the number one way that to take care of myself is to have those very clear delineations. Um, I am not my work. I love what I do, but it is not me and it is not my life. Um, It is very important piece of it. And that makes me feel energized and ready to come back when it's time to come back. Makes sense to me. And I think boundaries are just so important with like everything. Everything. (laughs) Um, Okay. How would you define happiness? I don't know. Honestly, I probably wouldn't spend a whole lot of time trying. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I, I don't know. I think happiness is fleeting. I place a lot more value on being content, um, feeling grounded, feeling stable. Um, and you know, when I, when I realize that I have the whole evening ahead of me, to put on the comfy clothes and watch three episodes of Sopranos, I, I might have, I might have that kind of feeling of that, that happiness. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, I, I I don't worry about it too much. I feel like if my life is stable and I'm content in what I'm doing and I have good boundaries, then I will be open to receive and notice the happiness when it kind of flutters through. Love that answer. Okay, so next couple questions are a little bit vulnerable. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician? (laughs) Oh, so when I worked, I worked at the methadone clinic for quite some time. And it was, you know, as I mentioned, sort of like doing therapy on a pirate ship. And you know, we're sort of, we're there at, sorry, situating, we're, we're there as therapists. We're also sort of, sort of case managers. And then also there's just sort of, you know, stuff that has to be checked in and managed. And so relatively chaotic environment. And we would have, we have like this waiting area where people are waiting their turn um, and then our offices. And then we're always going back and forth to the copy machine. We're checking on things. And it was the holidays. And I was walking through the lobby and I saw some people, like two guys arguing. And so I went to like check in, like see if there's an issue. But they were arguing and I was just, I was being very busy, feeling very competent, just getting my work done right. Weird hours. So it's like six o'clock in the morning and they were arguing about how stupid I looked, um, but, and how I looked stupid. So I was, I was wearing what I thought was very, very great outfit. I was wearing like a black and white striped shirt. Like, I don't know, like some kind of like maroon pants or something and a scarf. Cause it was really cold outside. 
and they were arguing about whether I looked like the Hamburglar or a Christmas elf. (laughs) 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 Oh, she looks like a Hamburglar. No, she doesn't. She looks like an elf. Um, (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) And I, I had to accept the fact that they were both right. (laughs) I did both look like the Hamburglar and an elf. And also that we need not take ourselves quite so seriously. Um, (laughs) And the second that you do start to take yourself too seriously, if you work with the right population, they will take you down a peg when you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, I never wore that outfit again. (laughs) (laughs) That's unfortunate because now I want to see it. (laughs) I still wear the shirt, but never paired with the pants that made me look like an elf. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a scarf anymore either. And I I went home and told my partner what happened. And he was like, (laughs) (laughs) love it. Love it. (laughs) Um, okay. So next vulnerable question that I promised, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? I have been, I'm not presently. Um, I have been, well, there was the experience when I was a kid that I mentioned, right. That that was like, I had to, and that was time limited. Um, but twice as an adult, one was a good experience. One was not. The one that was not like nothing traumatic happened, mostly like sheer annoyance. Um, and it's a very good lesson for me as a therapist, though, because I learned the importance of knowing your audience. Um, I, in a um, unbridled moment of vulnerability, I cried in front of someone I don't know well, which is just not an easy thing for me to do. And this man thanked me verbally for sharing my tears with him. He said that. Um, Now, I'm not saying what he said was wrong. I'm just saying I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) I I hated it so much. It's like... It's such a therapist-y response. Oh my God, like I'm already crying. And like, I feel like you know me well enough to know, like, I don't want to be doing this. And this is very uncomfortable for me. And you just, you thanked me for it. And you, I didn't want to share these tears with you. Like, you know, like it was just, he drew too much attention to it. And what it did was make me feel really self-conscious, really angry. Um. And what's funny is to this day, I don't remember what made me cry. Interesting. I don't even know what I was talking about in that moment that felt so overwhelming. Um, It it just, it, for me, it just really marred that experience. Mm -hmm. And, and then I had a very positive longer term therapy experience. Um, in which I feel like she understood who I was and what I needed from her. Um, And she respected um, 
I don't know, just who I was as a person, right? Yeah. Um, she was able to point things out and challenge and bring new ideas in a way that respected who I ultimately was and what I ultimately stood for as a human. And that's why finding the right fit is so important. I mean, I mean, um, because that man meant well, right? Like he didn't do, he, and I want to be clear, especially if there's anybody, a therapist who says that nothing wrong with what he said, but you have to know your audience, have to know your audience. Um, and yeah, so yes, fit, fit is everything. Fit is everything. Cool. Well, Kimberly, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you and or your work? I don't, this is like the longest I've ever talked about myself. I really don't think there's <laughs> Awesome. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for, for being on it. Thank you so much for the opportunity, not just to be on your show, but for the opportunity to speak specifically about harm reduction. Um, Cause I do feel like it's such an important topic and such a life-saving topic. Um, and so I'm, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Totally agree. That's why I wanted you on. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Sarah Sloan, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist Associate, supervised by Claudia Thompson, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist Supervisor and ASEX Certified Sex Therapist, who will be talking about her work in an area of specialty, sex therapy for couples. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T dot com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.